0: Hi there, welcome to the Echo Podcast, where we discuss how our hearts and minds can be an echo of God's heart and mind and what that even means in this world. We are Pastor Dan Singhorn and Adrian Tarullo from Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana. Pastor Dan is Shiloh's main leader and head pastor, and I, Adrian, am the youth leader. Each episode will consist of us talking about different topics and ideals in the Christian faith inspired from the previous Sunday sermon. We're going pulpit to podcast. We hope you find our conversation enriching, inspiring, and entertaining. And on Sunday of this past week, we had a guest speaker come in and uh, deliver a message. And he was from the Gideons. Um, so these are this is a pretty well known organization, uh, the Gideon International. I think is their their quote, you know, their head title there. Um, I did a little digging on them. Um, they've actually been around for over 100 years. And I'm pretty sure our speaker said that, but, you know, I mm-hmm. forgot. So they've been around since 1908. And um, their statement to define who they are, as it says on their website, we are a body of believers dedicated to making the word of God available to everyone and together with the local church reaching souls for Christ. So it actually started with like two men meeting in 1908 or maybe before that. And they were just like, you know, I think everyone needs to, to know what the Bible says. They need to have a Bible in their hands. Mm-hmm. And so it started by uh, them placing Bibles in hotel rooms, just as simple as that, which is so awesome. And then it's evolved quite a bit since then. Um, and they, he told us on Sunday, they've now spread over 2.5 billion, billion with a B, that's impressive, mm-hmm. testaments in more than 95 languages to 200 countries, territories, and possessions across the globe. So if we see a Bible in a hotel room or a nursing home or a hospital, it's probably from the Gideons. So it was really cool that they came in and talked with us. And I know that you support their ministry quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Pastor Dan, I was wondering if you had like any other thoughts from Sunday after he came in?
1: Well, as I tend to do with most of our conversations, I'm going to start from 50,000 feet and come down from there. You know, um, when I was uh, a young teenager, I was living in Pennsylvania and I was uh, going to Catholic church and, you know, we we were educated. We did what we called CCD or Sunday school, basically, but Christian catechism, and uh catholic catechism but but anyway i you know reading the bible was not something that we uh got uh uh encouraged we were not encouraged to read the bible in our and i know you probably had a similar experience yeah and and this isn't about that I'm, i'm not judging catholics or anything i'm just telling the truth i grew up to a certain point not encouraged to read the Bible, but we had one in our house and I used to look through it all the time. And, um, I think I was probably the only person in our family that picked it up and looked through it, you know, even when I was a little kid and what's really funny is it had some pictures in it. And at this point in my life, I've actually been to and seen some of the places that those pictures, show you know like the the tomb of Jesus for example stuff like that is and it just occurred to me telling you this story that as I was remembering that bible um, and thinking back on that and then when I got into uh, we moved to Oklahoma to a little town in the bible belt the baptist bible belt and my friends that I started hanging out with early on were all christian kids that went to church and of course they were all really indoctrinated into a culture of invite your friends to Church and they would have little competitions and things, and they would give you prizes, give give the kids prizes for bringing friends to church. And so you know, and apparently a big coup would have been to bring the Catholic kid from back east, you know. Um, and so I I was uh, you know I was uh, uh, a gold medal guest, you know, for a lot of churches and things. But but my point is is that these kids all knew more about what the Bible said than I did. And that really bothered me. And so as I started listening to contemporary Christian music, which was really in its uh, uh, sort of golden age of, of, it was just emerging in those days. You know, you, you saw the Jesus Revolution. And I was a teenager experiencing what I guess you could say the end of the first generation and the beginning of the second generation of contemporary Christian music. And uh, I was influenced by people like Keith Green, and there's not enough I can say about Keith Green. Um, I went to concerts and I went to a very famous, sort of infamous uh, revival concert at Maybe Center at uh, Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, where uh, people, a revival almost broke out, but the staff of Oral Roberts University shut it down because Certain people were confessing sins that they didn't want confessed publicly. So oh my, that was a fascinating experience. But again, everybody knew more about what the Bible said than I did. And so I really, you know, wanted to read the Bible more. And I also desperately wanted to be understood by my parents. And that's another story in itself. And so I told them, you know, boy, this Christmas, I would love to have a really good study Bible. And they did something that now it doesn't surprise me, but back then I didn't understand it. They went to the Catholic priest and said, our son is hanging out with all these strange Protestants and he wants a study Bible. So they got me one and I, I, it's in there. It's right there in my closet on my bookshelf. Uh, my closet is really big and so I use it for my bookshelves. And, and it was the Jerusalem Bible. I have the only one of those I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, wow. But apparently this is what the Catholic priest recommended. And it's, uh, if you read in its introduction, it was the Catholic response to the King James Bible. And it was commissioned by a pope around the same time. And now there's a point I'm trying to make here. And that is, is that I craved Bible knowledge. When I was a teenager, and the more I read, the more I hungered for it. it re- I really did and but I didn't have any real instruction or anything, you know because it turns out that the other kids knew more about the Bible than me, but they really didn't know that much more. Hmm. They know what they they knew what they were being told. and you find, in fact, that in most religions in most churches. The vast majority of people who grew up in the church and have spent their whole life in that tradition only know what they've heard. They don't really know a lot more than that. Hmm. I mean, they just don't. And so they believe the Bible says things that it doesn't say because they've never actually read it. They just believe what they've heard because they have no reason to doubt that. This is what we all believe at this church and in this tradition. And so we talked about that last week, you know, when traditions are good and when they're bad. Mm-hmm. And so I won't review that except to say that the Bible's like that. A lot of people don't read the Bible because they think they already know what it says. Mm. But I wanted to know what it said. Mm-hmm. So I started reading the Bible. And then when I was in my 20s, because of a relationship I have with somebody who was in the uh, United Methodist Church, I started going to United Methodist Church and going to Bible study classes with the pastor. And I started really learning from a young adult perspective how much I wanted to know and how much the Bible had to share. And I bought a uh, one-year Bible. And this was like the first time, it was the first edition of the first version. And it was uh, was a one-year Bible and it was the um, living translation or the new living translation. And um, I read every day for a year until I had completed the entire Bible. I remember I used to ride my motorcycle to church and I remember having my Bible strapped to the back of the motorcycle and I hit a bump and it flew off and, um uh, uh, I heard it fall off, and I turned around and went back for it, and it had skidded across the road right in front of Jeff' boat, right in front of Jeff' boat down there in, in Jeffersonville. And I parked my motorcycle, and I went and retrieved it, and it was pretty rough. And I got to church, and some old man came up to me, and he says, Son, there's just nothing better to see in a young man's hand than a well-worn Bible. Well, you know, I have to admit that I've always felt a little uncomfortable with the Bible that doesn't look a little worn, you know, because it's like, well, you know, this person's carried a Bible. Obviously, they don't open it very often. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so this is this is like the 50,000-foot view of Dan in the Bible, right? So, so I wanted to know what the Bible said. And the more I read it, the more I hungered for it. it it's like eating potato chips, you know? You just... You can't eat one, right? You just keep shoving them in your face because it just makes you hungry for more. And I begin, I began to sense that there was more going on than just understanding what it said. I was sensing, and, and I see, I say this with hindsight because I don't know that I was really that conscious of it in those days. Plus, I was young and stupid and I was already wrecking relationships in my life. And there was all kinds of things that were, well, pretty typical of the twenties for most people in, in the late 20th century. And I was living that out. And thankfully nothing that I'd be embarrassed to tell about, I didn't have any illegal habits or anything like that, but I definitely was just being stupid and, uh, learning, you know, to be an adult so that maybe by the time I was 40 or so, I'd be a real grown up, you know, but anyway, I, uh, I know now that I was beginning to recognize the signs of how the Bible is more than the sum of its parts. Hmm. That there's something about reading the Bible that not only informs you, but it infuses you. Somehow it gets into your system. It, It's as though, and it's nothing mysterious or spooky. I'm not talking about playing with Ouija boards or anything like that. I just mean that 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 the bible is communicating something that is not just paid words on a page it's communicating the heart and mind of its author mm-hmm. and that's not that absurd a concept really because if you you know read romance stories or watch them on tv or in the movies or whatever people writing letters back and forth you know there is there are things that get transmitted across the pages uh, of emails or letters or whatever that say more than the words there's there's a, a sense of who the person is behind the words that comes across. And then the question with the Bible is is though who is the person that's coming across between the lines? Is it the person who actually got credit for that book like Isaiah or Luke or John or Moses or or is it somebody else And what I began to realize in my 20s is that the it didn't matter which book you were reading in the Bible because the Bible is a book of books it has 66 books within its binding written by roughly 40 authors and what's remarkable and downright uncanny about the Bible is is that there is a singular personality that comes across written between the lines not 40 or so personalities so there's 66 books roughly 40 authors and yet there's only one personality that comes across as you read your bible one unique personality one really big personality and the bible has a word for that logos which is Greek and it means word with a capital W and word with a capital W translates to a concept, which is an expression of the heart and mind of God. So the big personality that's coming across, comes across through the Bible is God, the heart and mind of God, the real nature of God. And that's what the Bible communicates so majestically and mysteriously to the people who read it or listen to its word because it's actually an oral uh, tradition. The Bible is an oral tradition before it became a written tradition. And so it's powerful to read it. It's even more powerful to hear it. And that's why in Sunday sermons, I often read long passages of scripture, even if I'm only gonna focus on a couple of ideas, and I do that to set the context, but I also just want people to hear the word, because I know a lot of people who come to church on Sundays feel like they read the Bible because they follow along with me on Sunday, and that's about as far as they get. So this is, this is why the Gideons became so important to me, because two things happened in my thirties, in my late thirties, when I became a pastor. So I started in the ministry when I was about 35. And at 35, I was as green as they came as far as pastors go. But I, the Lord had been preparing me. And I mean, really preparing me. And I had my first, uh, I'm gonna call it, you know, Bible college or seminary education My first was in the cab of a pickup truck for ten years, listening to Christian teaching radio stations all across the Midwest as I traveled in my first career of sales. And I listened to Jay Vernon McGee. I listened to Chuck Swindoll. I listened to Chuck Smith, who was the pastor there in Pasadena. Was it Pasadena? Anyway, I don't know. Chuck Smith is the pastor of the church that the Jesus Revolution story is built on. I listened to James Dobson. I listened to tons of teachers. I listened to um, Charles Stanley, Andy's dad. Um, I listened to all of these guys and more. Uh, I listened to a couple of country bumpkin, local pastors on the small radio stations out there uh, and heard a lot of pretty bizarre things too, you know, but I listened to it all. I, listen, I used to listen to audiobooks before that was a thing, because uh, that was just a fledgling offering at the local library, and they had a very limited selection, and I had listened to everything they had for the public, and I convinced the librarians to let me borrow books on tape for the blind that were part of the special services at the library, and, and the, on the condition that if anybody said... I want, if any blind person said, I need this book, that I would immediately turn it in so they could give it to that person. So I was listening, 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 listening. I was constantly absorbing audio information in my 20s and making up for a lot of, well, you know, you've heard me tell this before. You know, when I graduated from high school by the skin of my teeth, I I hated high school. I hated grade school. It was a learning environment that didn't suit me very well. And if, if I were a kid today, they would have pegged me with some sort of label and they'd have, you know try to put me on some kind of medication, whatever. But I always joke about how I graduated from high school, Lottie, how come? And then for 30 years, 35 years later, I graduated from my master's program, Magna Cum Lottie. So it had everything to do with learning style. I wasn't stupid. I just didn't learn well in the environment that public school offered during my youth and childhood. So it was never about being able to learn. So I was a learning maniac from pretty much the age of 20 to this day. And so the reason I'm laying all this groundwork for you is so then I became a pastor of a little church in a student appointment. And I hadn't been there three months and the funeral director from the little town near where I was serving called me up and says, I got a funeral for you. And I said, okay, you know, and I realized I'd never done a funeral before. And I said, all right. Um, You know, I called a pastor friend of mine and said, I got my first funeral. Can you, you know, kind of give me some pointers? And the guy gave me his notes and showed me what he always did. I get to the funeral home. And the funeral director and the family explained to me that this guy died in his 80s in serving a life sentence in the Michigan City prison in uh, up northern Indiana. And that's like Indiana's hardcore worst of the worst prisons um, for murdering a state trooper back in the 60s, in the 1960s. And, And I'm like, oh, my gosh. I My first funeral, and it's for a guy who, you know, died serving a life sentence for murdering a police officer. And what's more is the, the, the funeral director says, and that police officer was a good friend of mine.
0: Oh, no.
1: And I thought, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? Well, I got to talking to the family. And they very matter-of-factly told me, they said, well, he's been a Christian for decades. And I said, really, how do you know? And they said, well, you know, he got one of those prison Bibles given to him. And, you know, people in prison, they just don't have a lot to do and a lot of time on their hands. And he just read that thing and he believed it and it changed his life. And he started running around with some other people in the prison who were the same. He was a model prisoner and and was a uh, leader in the Christian community within the prison. And, you know, we believe that he, you know, is uh, with the Lord now, despite his crime. And I said, all right. And so when I preached his funeral, I told that story. And the old funeral director who has since passed away he stood back there and he's just shaking his head and then we get in the funeral coach to take him to the burial site and it's way out in the country so we had a long ride together and I'm sitting next to this guy uh, who only remembers this fella as the man who murdered his friend the state trooper and you know people's people's memories are funny. You know, probably everybody who knew about that crime was the state trooper's best friend. By the time we we're you know forty years later, you know, you know how it is. Uh, people people take local legends and sort of appropriate them. But I digress. And so he looks at me and he says, "You really believe he's in heaven?" And I said, well, I'll tell you the truth, Roger, if he read his Bible, gave his life to the Lord, confessed his sin to Christ, and then accepted Christ as the only source of salvation that he could rely on for getting himself into a right relationship with God the Father, then yes, he's in heaven. And the Lord forgave him for something society could not forgive him for. Hmm. And he was content to pay his debt to society, even though his debt to God had been canceled. And Roger went very silent and didn't say anything for a long time. And then we get to the burial site and I did the graveside rites. And then we got back in for the long drive home. And and he said, so you really believe he's in heaven? And I said, I told you what I think. And I said, see, that's the thing about, now. I didn't know this, Adrian, but this this funeral director was Catholic
0: no kidding
1: and i don't know how much that factored in but but i said to him you know i i don't know what else i can say to you i understand why you would hold a grudge against this guy for doing something that our society and most civilized people consider horrific and 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 you know i suspect from what i've heard that this was a crime of passion but because it involved a state trooper it was unforgivable, especially in those days, you know, um, because, you know, and, and Roger explained to me that it was sort of a love triangle and, you know, whatever. And, uh, and I said, so basically this guy lashed out in a rage and did something that he shouldn't do, and he regretted it, but he served his time, died in prison, but he used the time in prison to correct his relationship with God and then to the best of his ability, correct his relationship with society, even if his society was no further than those prison walls went. And I said, why is that so hard to handle? And, it, and it, maybe it's because God has a greater capacity for forgiveness than you do. And what would you forgive if you could or have forgiven, if you could, what have you done that you wish somebody forgave you for, you know, and, and he, he just, you know, and he was very kind to me every time I ever saw him after that, but it was just so funny, because it really was a, a wake-up call for him, so, and, and this is this, this green around the gills, brand new pastor, newly minted with no experience doing funerals, and no, or, you know, I've been on a thousand rides with the funeral directors, and, you know, I've I've joked for years that I'm I've been the passenger in a hearse so many times and come home from the ride, you know, and isn't that funny, you know? Cause how many passengers in hearses actually come home from the cemetery, you know? I do. Yeah. <laughs> Until I don't. <laughs> but what does that have to do with Gideon's in the Bible? Well, I think you can guess where I'm going with this. So I'm I'm struck with this profound idea that this man, you know, did what most Americans would consider the worst thing you can do. And he's suffering this lifelong punishment for doing it. But he read the Bible and the Bible changed his heart. It was the Bible. Um, The impression I got was that he didn't start asking other Christians or chaplains or anybody like that for advice until he read the Bible. And it was the Bible that changed his heart, that changed his mind. And so I started really getting what it was I had sensed when I was a teenager, that the Bible has a way of communicating more than its content on the pages. The Bible has a way of communicating something profound that is the word of God, the heart and mind of God. And that even though it's written by roughly 40 authors, it's still expressing one personality, despite that. 40 authors over a series of thousands of years, and yet it communicates one mind. That's kind of bizarre and wonderful all at the same time. It's what I call the majestic genius of God. And it can only be explained by the Holy Spirit. So then as a newly minted pastor, I got called by the local Gideon's camp down there in Harrison County. And they said, hey, we uh, we invite all the pastors to a pastor appreciation dinner um, once a year. And we'd love for you to come. I said, okay. And this is something they've, I, I've been to dozens of those and They explain all about the Gideons and how they don't want anything from pastors, that that's not what this is about. They just want to show us appreciation. But I started listening to them talk about what they do. And I thought, well, holy smokes. I've seen it firsthand in this story that I just told you about the inmate who died. And I'm beginning to get it. This is a powerful, powerful, powerful ministry. Because man, if people pick up the Bibles and read them, things happen. And it turns out the Gideons have done the same thing the same way for this hundred years or so, and with very little variation. I was talking with my bride about this the other day after the Sunday morning uh, sermon or message from the Gideon guy. And, and I told her, I said, you know, they, they, they've switched to the NIV now, which is something they never did and people always say, well, why do they only give away the King James? Are those are they those King James only people? I'm gonna tell you a little secret. Listeners, you gotta get this. It turns out that one of the reasons that the King James Bible is so ubiquitous is because it doesn't have any copyright infringement rules attached to it or anything. You can print the King James version for the cost of the paper. You don't have to pay anybody rights. The King James version is not copyrighted. And all that means is is that it's one very popular Bible if only because of its inexpensive uh, reproduction cost. I mean, the Gideons told us the other day that they can give away a small pocket Bible for like a dollar fifty a piece, you know. And so, why did they give away King James Bibles for the first hundred years? Because they were cheap to produce. Now, I don't want to belittle them. I think that's kind of a miraculous thing in itself. Mm-hmm. I think that's a gift from God right there, because the King James version is a very, very reliable translation. Anybody who's a King James only person. I'm not criticizing you for that, although I have to admit that I might sound like I'm mocking you, but only because I think that you could broaden your perspective a little bit and benefit from studying from newer versions and newer translations that have taken into account certain new discoveries. Um, That's what the King James Bible was. It was an attempt by King James and his court to have the most authoritative Bible translation or, or I should say version uh, that had ever been produced at the time. And so they went out of their way to find existent sources and to go back as far as they could to the most original Uh, content they could find so that they could translate it into the English language which had not been done up to that point the most authoritative bible up to that point was written in German and that's where we get the word Jehovah Hmm. because it's a German translation of the word Yahweh it's it's like it's like you know and it just stuck right and and uh, what it really gets to is is that that we have a tendency again, because of tradition to think that the King James Bible is the one only reliable uh, translation. And by the way, in Bible speak, translations are the Bibles that have been written from the ground up from as the most original sources available. In other words, the NIV is the New International Version, the English Standard Version, which is one we use at church now. Uh, I used to be an NIV guy and I switched to English Standard simply because it's more authoritative than the NIV. And in another 20 or 30 years, there'll probably be a more authoritative version than the ESV. And that's simply because new information comes to light all the time. And what's amazing is the Bible never really changes in its content and its meaning, but it does become uh, more reinforced by archeological finds. And, and uh, uh, it becomes more reinforced by, by discoveries that help make the translations more accurate because they find some archeological uh, artifact, let's say, that gives, you know, sort of a Rosetta Stone kind of thing. They find something that tells them they've been translating this word wrong or they haven't translated it as well as they can. And so it's like little things like that because, you know, the average modern Bible, if you open it up, first thing you discover is inside the front cover, there's a page full of scholars. There's probably 100 or 200 scholars because each one has taken a particular section and been charged with going back and making the best effort possible to give a good um, reproduction of the, the in original intent. And so the two miracles of the Bible are, number one, that people who read it can have their spirits transformed for some reason And the other miracle is is that it doesn't seem to matter how many different versions there are. The ones that are sort of approved or authorized by God, by the Holy Spirit, seem to proliferate, while the ones that are really bad seem to disappear pretty quickly. And there's a lot of historical evidence to support that claim that I just made. The story I often tell is how I went to a Bible archive in Chicago once many years ago and actually held in my hands the King Henry VIII Bible. And the person running the archive said, you are holding one of the most valuable and rarest things in this collection because there's only like 13 copies known to exist and you're holding one of them. And you open it up and I'm wearing white gloves and, you know, I'm being very careful and I open it up and there's a picture of King Henry the eighth in there in the first page. And, and, and what this archivist told us was, is that this Bible is rare because it was King Henry's attempt through his court to write a version of the Bible that basically took out all the stuff he didn't like about the Bible. and, uh especially those parts that made it hard for him to find a woman who could give him a male heir <laughs> you know because he had a lot of problems with the catholic church because his first wife catherine of aragon was a spanish catholic you know and and she wouldn't let him have a divorce and the pope wouldn't let him have a divorce and that's how we got the church of england and all of that's just fascinating and huh. you, you can watch the tutors on the you know max or whatever and it, it won't be great but it'll give you the general idea of what what happened why is this bible so rare god didn't want it in print. that's why ah thomas jefferson was famous for having cut strips out of his bible and making his own sort of hybridized version of the bible that wasn't so bad really but it was kind of like there there's a there's a source document called Q that is the um, uh, the sayings of Jesus, which seems to have preceded what we call the Bible. So there were these, these um, kind of like pamphlets. Well, they would have been rolls, of course, in those days, but they were like a pamphlet because they were not big and they weren't long. But they would pass around these things in the early church that, uh, were just quotes of Jesus, you know. So lo- what I jokingly refer to as the red ink, you know. And and uh, so, you know, Thomas Jefferson had sort of decided to make his own version of, you know, Q1.0 or something, you know. And guess what? It's a fascinating story and it's a fascinating artifact, but it never got reproduced. <laughs> it just didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, people like to talk about how the founding fathers were deists and all this. And yet the the reality is, is that some of them were devout Christians and some of them were, you know, deists, which were people who believed there was a God, but that he just kind of put it all together, set it into motion and doesn't interfere and doesn't involve himself. That's what a deist believes. Hmm. And my point is, is that there are a lot of legends and lore about the founding fathers and and, they're, you know, and there's a lot of people who are trying to explain away the idea that America was founded on Christian principles that make up stories and tell things about the founding fathers that aren't really true because they want to de-Christianize our country's sort of historical perspective. But I'm not here to argue about that. What I am here to say is, is the Bible seems to survive it all and it it's the bibles that say essentially it's as though if the bible can it it, it's like like the lord gets involved and if a bible communicates the logos then it's a go if it doesn't communicate the logos then it doesn't go i mean it's really that simple it and And so, you know, people can argue with me about that, but if they've got better arguments than mine, I'm open to that. But my simple solution to the problem of how can there be so many different Bibles and all that and different languages and everything? Well, the Lord is behind this vital part of his spreading of the gospel to all the nations of the world and everything. And so the Lord seems to be comfortable with variations on a theme, as long as the theme never changes. You know, that, that it, he, the Lord seems to be comfortable with, um, you know, uh, uh, for example, Eugene Peterson is, is well known for a lot of things, but his most famous contribution to Christendom was his message translation of the Bible. And by the way, a version is a Bible that is created from the ground up. A translation is a Bible that is based on a version, and yet it's been translated into you know, modern vernacular, for example. So basically, when I was telling you about that Bible that I f- had fall off my motorcycle, the New Living Translation was a translation of, I think it was the King James. Or it might've been the American Standard. I can't remember now. But all it was was somebody taking an existing Bible and rewriting the words in a more common language, you know, which which the New Living was trying to do because people said, well, I like the King James, but nobody talks that way. Sometimes I don't know what it means. Mm -hmm. Well, Eugene Peterson just did the same thing, but 60, 70 years later with, you know, an update It's just an important update. Okay, so we've gone from 50,000 feet. We're just about down to the Gideon speaker, because I think I've already made the point that I wanted to make, which is giving out Bibles is a really good idea. And it turns out that sometimes that's all you have to do. And our Gideon speaker did a wonderful job, and they always do, but they mostly talk to you about the work of the Gideons and how many Bibles they give out and how the local ministry works. And they solicit support from local churches. And I always encourage congregations after they're done and we get a generous donation for the local camp and all of that. But when it's all said and done, my experience of the Bible personally has reinforced over and over and over again the efficacy of giving bibles to people <laughs> you know that's that's what it's all about and i don't know anybody else who does it as effectively as the gideons so i always promote the gideons as a really good ministry because it's not their message that they're giving you know the 99 percent of the ministries out there that come to your church They ask for your financial support, are asking you to give to them or their ministry and their message. (laughs) And you either believe that their message is in alignment with your values and your message, which we hope is the gospel, right? Or you don't. But I don't know another ministry that gives the message away, and that's what they're about. Yeah, so
0: <laughs> that's true.
1: Yeah, you know.
0: There is transformative power of the word, of the Bible. And, you know, I've had some people ask me before, like, well, how come the Bible is what it is? How come there are books in the Bible? Like, how what was the cut? Who made the cut? Why are there some books in there and others are not? Because there are so many literary works from... Thomas or whoever that haven't made it in the Bible. And the answer that I found was there's like a blueprint or, or a a fingerprint throughout the whole Bible. And that's basically what you're saying. That's the logos Yeah, is like throughout all these books, it's telling us these certain characteristics of God and who God is. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found that to be really cool. The source that I found on that, they said it's kind of like, um, If you were to come across a painting and there's no signature on it, there's no name, you don't know who it is. If you are familiar with the artist, you can say, oh, well, this is a Monet painting. Mm -hmm. I know that because he does these certain brush strokes and it communicates this certain blah, blah, blah. I'm not into art that much. Mm -hmm. But there are certain characteristics of Monet that people know. Oh, yeah, that's a Monet painting. And I think that is huge to the Testament of like how the books got in the Bible in the first place, because people will say, Oh, well, wasn't it just humans who chose the books, you know, who created the Bible? Sure. But like through God, because Mm -hmm. there is this fingerprint, like they know, Oh yeah, this is definitely written by God. Uh, So I thought that was really cool.
1: Yeah. I think that's a wonderful way to illustrate it. Uh, You know uh, if, If only because, you know, when you talk about the great artists, you know, they're called the masters. Yeah. You know, and and so it just has that nice sort of master's touch vibe as a way of explaining it. Like, how do you know this Bible's legit? It has the master's touch. You can just tell. And that sounds a little cheap to people who don't have. I'm very aware that I speak from the perspective, and I know you do too, of being a converted believer, you know, like, and what conversion do I mean? I mean that there was a moment in my life when I stopped looking at the world through my human eyes, and I began to see the world through this Christian biblical view, which is a gift of the Spirit. It's something the Holy Spirit does when you're born again. You're, you're given a new sort of inner nature in the Holy Spirit, an eternal nature, and that same Holy Spirit then begins to change your perspective on everything and I don't know how to explain to unbelievers why that's not a weird bad thing. I just know that when it comes it is so much better and the world makes so much more sense when you begin to see it that way and I remember a couple of weeks ago saying you know my worldview has become so, converted that I see things in a way that I could never have imagined them even 20 20 30 years ago and all this time being a Christian. So, you know, it's like the Holy Spirit every time every time the Holy Spirit chisels away more of my human nature, it makes room for more of the spirit's nature and then I get to see things I couldn't see before, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so I look at the Bible that way. Um there are the Bible tells us that there are countless times when it looked like everything was being managed by humans and human control, but then you realize it was God allowing human control to fulfill God's purpose or using human control. You know, so like sometimes when God wanted to, uh, punish the people of Israel he might let the Assyrians or the Babylonians have their way with them but it wasn't that he favored the Babylonians or the Assyrians it was because this was the means to an end and so you could say the same thing about post-biblical Christian history after the after the apostles and in the age of the church post-apostles we got the Bible because it was the next best thing to having an apostle to talk to it essentially. And those things that were supposed to be included in the Canon, which is in this case, a word that describes what you said, the blueprint, right? There were humans involved in that decision. And there are shows you can watch on A&E or discovery or whatever, where some Noted historian, or whatever, you know, because there's about a zillion college professors that they can pick for their interviews, and you know, they'll say, Oh, Cambridge professor of archaeological, or whatever, you know. Well, there's plenty of those out there. You pick the one that tells what you want your documentary to say. and but but my point is is that people can say that there was human involvement in the decisions about which books went into the bible and they would be right but they need to from faith's point of view recognize that just like the bible itself says there are plenty of times when god's letting humans feel like they're in control but god's using their decisions and kind of affecting their decisions so that God's purpose is fulfilled. So the Bible we have and the one that's been consistent for you know 1500 years or so is remarkably consistent for so long a time and it's too it's too uh, extraordinary to have a human behind it. Just like there are people that say that the Bible's not true it's just a human like Eh, you know what? Humans are capable of writing books as remarkable as the Harry Potter series or whatever. But at the end of the day, there's too much tucked between the lines of the Bible for it to be a human thing. It it doesn't. It exceeds human capacity, and you can see that when you read it. And so, in the same way, I'm willing to bet that the proliferation of the Bible throughout the ages. Has that divine touch as well. And so somebody might say, well, why didn't the Gospel of Thomas get included in the canon? Because God didn't want it in there. But I've read the Gospel of Thomas. It's very interesting. You know, um, I've read, uh, I've read a, my mother's name is Tekla. And she always talked about how growing up she didn't really like her name. Because first of all, people didn't know how to pronounce it. And secondly, like, what kind of name is that? And I, when I went to, to my first of three or four rounds of, of deep Bible education, seminary, you know, Bible college, all that, I, I after I went through all of that, uh, early on in the first one, I mean, so let me rephrase this. I've been through all of that by the time we're sitting here talking. But early on, back in the, the like early 90s, I discovered in a seminary library, a book called The Accounts of Paul and Tecla. And I was like, oh wow, I gotta read this for mom. And it's a non-canonical book that describes Paul's ministry in a certain place. I've kind of forgotten some of it. And with this person who would be then known as St. Tecla. Huh. And it turns out that St. Tecla was, was, uh, credited with certain miracles, but her most profound miracle was that when she and Paul were trying to escape, uh, a murderous group of Roman soldiers who wanted to kill them. Uh, I think it was Roman soldiers. It was somebody who wanted to kill them, which is pretty typical in the new Testament. Um, she, tucked herself between two rocks or in the cleft of a couple of rocks. And then was uh, the rocks just closed in on her and they couldn't get to her. But there was a little strip of her clothing that was still sticking out of the rock crack. And so this is the legend of Tekla and this piece of cloth is considered holy and it still exists somewhere. Yeah, it's probably in the Vatican basement or something, you know, but... I just, I copied that on the photocopier because that's what we had to do those days, you know. It was all Googling things, you know, and, and I copied that and I gave it to my mother. And I'm, I'm sorry because I'm really probably butchering the story, but I'm remembering something that I did 30 years ago or so. Sure. <laughs> but but I, uh, I just remember um, reading all of that and just being so proud that I could tell my mom where her name came from. That it was Saint Tecla, who was a Catholic saint, and that it was based on a legend about her and her relationship with the Apostle Paul. And, and uh, kind of reminds me of that scene in uh, uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas, I think, you know, where they're talking about pig pen and the dirt could be from ancient Mesopotamia or something. And he goes, kind of makes you want to treat me with a little more respect, doesn't it? <laughs>
0: anyway so question um (laughs) did humans push these rocks together what is this and i'm guessing she died i mean right well
1: she just no i i mean now you're asking me to recall something that i've read way long long time ago but it was as though god hid her in the cleft of the rock and and then i guess you know took her to be with him, you know, like sort of like the assumption of Mary, like the, the, the Catholic church has this legend of Mary's assumption that she didn't die. She, you know, was assumed into the presence of God. Um, and the only thing I can say, cause I can't explain the Catholic doctrine of the assumption of Mary. I cannot explain that. Because I'm not educated enough, but I would liken it to what is said in the Bible about um, certain other characters who were essentially raptured. You know, uh, like Moses, for example. You know, he he died on the mount uh, 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 on Mount Nebo, but there's no tomb up there. He's not buried there. And yet there's a story in Jude about how Michael and Satan were fighting over Moses' body. So my point is, (laughs) yeah. My point is, is, I use the scriptures as the only reliable authority on anything. And so the only way that I can talk about Mary is based on what the Bible says. And what the Bible says is that John took care of her and the church went on and we never hear about her again after that. So, um, presumably she died and was buried just like all the other apostles. But the Catholic tradition is, is that she was assumed that is that somehow God just kind of, you know, bodily and spiritually just took her into God's presence. Well, closest thing I can think of to that as a biblical thing would be the rapture. And actually the word rapture is not in the Bible. And so there's really controversy among non-Catholics about the concept of rapture. The Bible is very explicit about how one second, one person's going to be gone and another one's going to be there, right? Like, so it describes the concept of rapture, but it never actually uses the word rapture. Hmm. And so I could argue, I guess, that maybe that's what the Catholics mean when they talk about Mary that she was there and then she wasn't. Just immediately transmitted into the presence of God, which would be, in effect, a rapture. Or, and, and, Since I wandered down that rabbit trail, rapture is a word that has a Latin origin that means basically steal away. You know, so you're there and then it's like the invisible hand of God just snatches you away to heaven. You know, maybe that's what happened to St. Tecla. You know, she slipped into this crevice. She was... Stolen away into the presence of God and then the rocks closed and, you know.
0: Interesting. I want to switch gears for just a second and ask a question about the story that you told near the beginning, somewhere before now uh, in this podcast. But so, okay. so I'm thinking about the world today and especially in the Western world, we have unlimited access to the Bible. I mean, it's everywhere. You can get a free app on your phone. You can Google it. There's, I know, I've seen. There's probably like four or five just within arm's reach in this office. But more and, than that, yeah. So several more. I mean, that's so great. Like mm. there, there's Bibles everywhere, and they're so accessible. But I feel like there's almost like a decrease in hunger to know what it says because it's so accessible. And in the story you told earlier, you're describing this like intense hunger that you felt for the mm-hmm. word. You're like, man, I just, I wanted to know what that thing said so bad. I listened to all these people. I was consumed by it is basically what you said. Yeah. And my question is, where do you think that hunger came from? And how can we as Christians tap into that when say we've been Christians for so long and that hunger subsides after a while? How mm-hmm. How can we like, reinvigorate that like what's that first potato chip you know that gets you to want to eat the whole bag
1: well i'm going to switch gears in a way too because what i want to tell you is what i described was something in our wesleyan methodist tradition is called prevenient grace okay Mm Mm-hmm And prevenient grace is a way of describing God's pursuit of us, even when we're not pursuing God, okay? So the idea is is that God's grace compels God to seek you, and that really means, if you translate it in another way, that he loves you so much that he's always trying to draw you to him and always providing ways for you to recognize that he is there. You know, it's, it's like people spend their lives running from God and then they stop, turn around, and God's right there because God has never stopped pursuing them. So that's the concept of prevenient grace or pursuing grace, you could maybe call it. And so I think what happened to me is, is that God was pursuing me in this way. And, and it's sort of, I don't know, ironic isn't probably the best word, but it's remarkable that this Catholic kid ended up being a pastor in the Methodist tradition who has a term that is uniquely Methodist to describe what got him here. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like, like, how does that even happen? And, and maybe the answer is that's that dang grace of God chasing you down, man. You know, so I, I don't, you know, I, I'm not trying to be funny, but the truth is, is that, that that's the best way to describe what happened to me. And I think that is what was needed, what is needed, is for people to stop this frenetic, crazy, running from one thing to another to another. And they're they're constantly looking for solace and looking for sort of, self-prescribed medication you know self-medicating is a major major problem in our society because people are trying to numb themselves against certain types of pain and nowadays people even consider boredom painful like i can't risk the pain of being bored you know the vast majority of men who don't come to church with their families will tell you that it's because it's boring. And what they're saying is, is I can spend an hour watching a sporting event or a, a talk show about sports. I can spend an hour sitting in a tree stand with nothing walking by for me to shoot. They can do an hour of all kinds of things, but they can't stand the idea of listening to some dude who isn't that manly standing in the pulpit for 20 minutes talking. Right. And I'm being a little sarcastic to make my point Mm -hmm. is that there are people out there who, whether they're conscious of it or not, are essentially anti-prevenient. God is pursuing them and they are actively evading God. Whether they mean to or not, they are in in some way or another committed to evading god's pursuit so watch your favorite crime show or spy show or whatever and they look in the mirror and they go someone's following us and so they do their best to try to shake the tail you know to shake this car that's tailing them the spy that's tailing them the popo whatever right they're trying to shed this pursuer and that's exactly what a lot of people do and they aren't always conscious of it because what they really think they're doing is pursuing things that they consider more enjoyable or more valuable. And they imagine that if God catches up with them, that their life is going to be changed in some way that's going to make it less free, less pleasurable, less uh, uh, liberated. And I know I said free, but I mean like, like, you know, Christians are always telling you what you're doing wrong. You know, Christians are always telling you uh, what's wrong with you. And they're always telling you about things you're not allowed to do and all this. And they, so they have this natural inclination to think that if God catches up with them, their lives are going to be changed in a way that they don't think they could live with. You know, it never occurs to them that, maybe if god catches up with you you're going to have a life that is better than you could have ever imagined and so they're like anti-pervenia they're they're evasive and and i think that's it and i don't know what we believers can do about that except what has always worked for as long as christianity has been around and that is tell the story to witness that's we you know when I was growing up in in, well I should say growing up when I moved to Oklahoma and I was exposed to all of that uh Protestant religion you know and it was mostly Southern Baptist really in that place but um people talked about witnessing and giving their testimony and and a lot of that stuff turned into dirty words for me because it was so distorted by the people who were using the terms, you know? And again, they were sharing their tradition, not their faith. They were sharing, uh, you know, they'd say they are witnessing for Christ, but they were doing it in a sort of programmatic way that was based on some class they took at school or, or, or at church, rather, Sunday school, that kind of thing. My point is, is that it really does come back to, though, witnessing, what does a witness do? A witness tells you what they saw, what they heard, what they know. You can have an expert witness because they know a lot about a certain subject. You can have an eyewitness because they saw something. You can have a new witness because they heard something. You know, that's what witnessing is. And so the most profound way to influence people to slow down and let God catch up with them is to say, when I slowed down and let God catch up with me, this is what happened. My life was this way before. Then I met Jesus and everything changed. And now my life is this way. That's witnessing.
0: Yeah. We just watched that episode of the chosen and youth group last week where Mary Magdalene says that, and that is so powerful. Yep. I just took a second to let everyone let that soak in. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to quote her exact words, but I'll probably butcher it. Anyway, watch The Chosen. It was really good the way they did it. But (laughs) she basically is telling, um, oh, my goodness, brain mush. Um,
1: Well, it was um, um,
0: the leader of the Pharisees, the older man. Oh, my goodness. Nicodemus. Thank you, Nicodemus. She's telling Nicodemus, well, basically, I was one way and then i met him and now i'm completely changed and the difference was him and that's right. that's your testimony and i feel like we could do an entire podcast on witnessing and you know just telling your story and i think i'd love to do that maybe next week let's pick up there we can. because this weekend we're doing dare to share with the youth group which is exactly that it's teaching teens Why and how to share their testimony. Why is it important? How do you do it? What works? So uh, I might have some enlightening ideas for you next week.
1: And I think we can even echo the sermon a little bit too, because I'm going to be talking uh, about the apostolic tradition again, and this time about John, the apostle. And John was used uniquely by the Lord as a witness because he wrote the gospel of john and gave us a perspective on the lord that is not like the other three gospels and yet it is such a vital part of our understanding of christ's nature he says john the gospel of john says in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god Mm -hmm. and then the word became flesh and dwelt among us you know and so he's giving us this concept of the logos that has been informing everything we've talked about in this podcast. And he's also the guy who tells people how he witnessed the last days and the final judgment, and then he bore witness to that. So witnessing could be a big part of our discussion next week because God gives us news that he wants us to share. He gives us information he wants us to share. He wants us to be his witnesses.
0: Awesome. There are so many times where like what quote you have planned and what quote I have planned somehow come together in a beautiful way without us even trying. And that's God. Right. And I I think this is just one of those things. I,
1: I, I call it spiritual synergy. You know, the Holy Spirit creates a synergy among other spirit filled people. That creates a whole lot of what we call coincidences, but they're really not, you know, it's a synergy. Yeah. It's a synchronicity, you know, that comes. It's like when I said a few weeks ago in in the service that, you know, I can usually tell if a person is filled filled with the spirit because I hear the Holy Spirit in the way they pray, for example, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. I'm not going to talk about it now, but I can also tell when people are doing what their tradition has taught them to do. And, you know, the spirit infuses what we do in such a way that it resonates with other people filled with the spirit. And I just call that spiritual synergy.
0: Cool. Well, I can't wait to see where our spiritual synergy takes us next week. (laughs) Stay tuned.
1: Thanks for listening, guys. We love you.